Hello everyone, Brett Stewart here and welcome to Movie Go Round. As you might have heard last week, a deadly hard drive failure caused us to lose a couple files. We're still working to recover them, but in the meantime, we wanted to make sure new episodes filled your feed on schedule. Since it's Movie Ghoul Round Month, Suspiria was our planned episode for this release. To top off this recording, myself, David, and Nicole did a 10-minute discussion of Suspiria after the fact. We highly recommend you check out that film, and we hope this 10-minute discussion gives you an insight into what we are thinking about that pick of Nicole's. After that, you'll hear an episode of Geek Cinema Society, the first show that the three of us did together. The show, which ran for 50 episodes, is available in its entirety on Podcatchers. Just search Geek Cinema Society. While the format was different, the insights, the banter, and the fun, they were really all still there. We wanted to take this opportunity to highlight one of our favorite spooky releases in that catalog to go along with Movie Ghoul Round, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. We hope you enjoy this episode covering both Suspiria and Rocky Horror. We're getting our ducks in a row for next week's episode, though, so expect a variation on the You Did This To Us cycle, potentially another remastered geek cinema. Uh, by the way, this it has been remastered. I'm quite excited about that. So enjoy this episode, and you'll get the opportunity to hear David and Nicole sounding basically how they always have, and me sounding a little bit younger two years ago, once a college student. Not anymore, but I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks, everybody. Hello, everybody. We are doing a very quick recap of Suspiria. Suspiria was an episode that it looks like we probably lost it to the the great hard drive failure of October 2018. Uh, But we did want to talk about it because you are going to get a great episode coming up right here. But we want to mention some of the highlights of Suspiria in case you went and watched it because we did announce it last episode and we all really enjoyed it. It was an episode that came to a pretty gleaming consensus of this movie. Uh, Nicole, this was a movie that you picked. Uh, Tell us some of the reasons you brought Suspiria to the table, some of the reasons that folks should go out and watch this movie, especially because literally this week there will be a uh, a, um, a remake released next weekend, I believe. So... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's coming out, I believe, just after Halloween, unless they pushed it up. Um, so it's sort of a remake slash reimagining. Uh, it's also set at the same time as the original. I believe it's set in the late seventies. Um, so it comes Suspiria out October twenty sixth. So it'll be Friday of the week ah. this episode comes out. Okay, so just before Halloween, it's com- the remake's coming out. Um, I picked this movie because it is a Dario Argento classic, and Dario Argento is an Italian director who has mostly worked in a genre called giallo, which are these uh, tend to be excessively lurid and gory, uh, typically murder, mystery, thrillers. And this one's got more of a hint of the supernatural to it. Um, And it is a visually very striking film. It's got the most vivid color I think I've ever possibly that I've ever seen in a film, certainly that I've ever seen in a film from the 1970s. Um, and the 
the acting is is like strange and stiff in some places and melodramatic in other places. And the movie takes this left turn. And when you get the supernatural explanation, you're like, wait, what? Um, <laughs> and the, the gore in this is pretty impressive and weird. And I just feel like this is a movie. If you like, cult cinema if you like horror cinema if you like italian cinema this is a movie that you need to see it's kind of one of the fundamentals i would also say it it is more accessible for folks who might not be willing to jump into a lot of uh, around the world picks that we have just because it is in english so um it's well it's, it's per- dubbed into english it's dubbed in english correct uh to varying Some degrees of, of success but, yeah, some of the lines are delivered in English, but a lot of the actors were actually speaking in their native Italian or French or German and got dubbed over. Goodness, man. Yeah, so I mean, that's an opportunity to delve in this one of our around the world films that hopefully will be a little more accessible to you. I would highly recommend checking out this week if you're if you're a horror fan and this is the season for it. I one thing I want to mention and then I'll hand it over to David is when I saw this movie, I found it to really be horror through sound and color. Um now that I've seen Mandy, I could align it a little bit in that sense. Uh, this year's Nick Cage vehicle, simply because it's so bright with these vivid hues of red and blue, uh, and they're cues to what you should be scared of and what should be coming, but it doesn't cheaply jump scare you at all. Uh, and the music does exactly the same thing. There are moments in Speria where the music is building and building and building and it doesn't come to anything cheap. And that's what I really can't overemphasize with this movie is that at no point does it feel cheap. Does it feel like it's trying to jump scare you? Does it feel like it's trying to uh, write a dumb horror movie for you? The twist at the end of it being more supernatural and being a hierarchy of witches in this dance studio is fascinating. Spoilers. for well, a movie that's 41 years old. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's fascinating and it's and it's completely engrossing and it doesn't feel uh it doesn't feel cheap. And I and I keep using that word because that is how so much horror can be. And I love that this movie doesn't do that to you. It it challenges you um to imagine a little bit more of the gore and the horror than it really is going to show you because the gore that Nicole mentioned is kind of sporadic and also really stylized and it looks like neon red paint. So it, it's, I don't want to say it's unbelievable, but it's not going to shock you necessarily. I, I, I loved this movie. This movie was something I want to, I want to own. I want to see the 2018 version of this. I'm really excited to see that. Uh, I, I loved it. Uh, David, what were your thoughts on it? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot um, that you guys have said that I definitely agree with. Uh, you know, the, the color in this movie is so striking. And then I just remember some points of the score being so just like interesting and, and gripping and captivating. Um, I am not the world's biggest horror buff, uh, I will say. So I can't speak to too much uh, of it, but I know that this movie, you know, from what I have seen and continue to see, you can see how this movie kind of had influence, why it is a cult classic, um, you know, 70s horror movies had a very specific feel to them and this was kind of i would say playing into those in the best sort of way it's it's a, it's a prime example of what horror was like in that time uh, at its best uh and you know the 
the the plot is a little thin, but I think it makes up for it still in in what isn't there by giving you a feast for your eyes and ears. And uh, you know, if you're a fan of horror, definitely check this movie out. Yeah, and you're right. I'm glad you brought up the thin plot because that's something we talked about in the long form of this. And yeah, it, it does have moments where it feels like thin in the sense that it's not giving you a lot to play with. But and the then, characters aren't very deep. And yeah, yeah. Some some of the, some of the motivations, some of the characters are unclear. The characters are not terribly deep, but it makes up for it so enthusiastically with everything else that it does and i absolutely get why it's a classic i i love the score of this movie um and you know what olga is a bitch and david was here for it i just want to (laughs) but we were all there for olga being a bitch yeah no i'm sorry that was nicole but yes uh yeah Olga, the character of Olga, uh, is one of the early antagonists of our main character, and kind of great. <laughs> yeah, I wonder if it. she'll be in the remake. I think That'll she is. Uh, oh, good. That'll, so that's, I, I can actually tell you that right now off. because I have it open. <laughs> Casting. <laughs> no, but what you're saying about the plot being thin, uh, this is this movie is much more about atmosphere, Absolutely. and the plot Absolutely. is just the the why of why these horrible strange things are happening at this right. dance academy yeah so actually um weirdly enough perhaps in the vein of the original suspiria uh olga is in the new one played by elena Fokina, and she does not have acting history she is a yoga guru who is also <laughs> a dancer actress and choreographer of contemporary dance well, the so, dancing in this movie, this movie seems to be much more, you know, in the uh, the 77 version, there's like maybe one scene where people are dancing around a room. This movie, and I, from what I've seen and read, there's a lot of dancing in it. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the contortion of like really good dancers paired with horror is just weird. It creeps me out. I'm so excited for this movie. Uh <laughs> I will report back on our on our next episode, and we'll determine. I don't know. I you guys need to go see it as well. Hopefully, oh, um, maybe I'm planning to. But I'm I'm excited to see what my favorite Halloween movie of the year is. It's like so far we got we have Halloween, we have Hellfest. God God bless Hellfest. Um, so bad, probably maybe even the worst movie I've ever seen in in the ballpark. Wow. Um, and then this. So what's gonna win? Huh, what about what about Mandy? Oh, oh my God, and Mandy. I don't know Man- if I'd call that a Halloween movie, though. Well, yeah, I I, currently, currently, my favorite Halloween movie is The Haunting of Hill House. Yeah, oh my God. I can, uh, episode of six of The Haunting of Hill House is my favorite Halloween movie ever. <laughs> there oh you have God. it, folks. I could talk about that show endlessly, but you know what? We're going to move on to another ep- another episode right now, uh, a Geek Cinema throwback for all of you. So thank you for tuning in uh, to our Suspiria rundown. You're now going to get a full episode throwback. It'll be a lot of fun. We hope you enjoy it. And then moving on, uh, we're ho- hopefully going to have all the issues of this hard drive failure remedied. <laughs> Go check out Suspiria. All three of us recommend it.
Hello, everybody. My name is indeed Brett Stewart, and you are listening to Geek Cinema Society, the podcast where every single week we delve into a film that is considered pivotal to geek culture. And when we created this show, we reached out to you, the listeners, to help us determine and rank these films. Now, every single week we bring a guest on the program, and that guest hasn't seen this week's film until this week. That adds a really interesting dichotomy to our discussion and our conversation. Uh, right off the bat, I do want to introduce my wonderful co-hosts that are joining us as usual. David Luzader, how are you doing this fine evening? Oh, I, I'm doing well. Uh, this is, uh, this is a, always an interesting film to discuss, and unfortunately the songs will get stuck in my head for a long time. So if I could stop singing the words, touch a touch a touch a touch me, especially when I'm out in public around people, that would be great, but it's probably not going to happen for a while. That's okay. Many of us are still singing Goonies Are Good Enough in public as well. No, that would be just you. That's yeah. probably just me. Uh, and that, of course, is Nicole Davis. How are you doing? I'm pretty well. I'm Personally, I have hot patootie, bless my soul, stuck in my head on an infinite loop. Uh, but hopefully I can scrub that right out with some of the other uh, fantastic music from this film. Right on. Well, uh, our guest this week is Patient Lee, an award-winning erotic nom- romance author that specializes in what she calls erotic realism, which is the art of crafting erotic stories based in reality and infusing them with the mundane and the stylings of the erotic. She is currently promoting Mrs. Maitland's Sad Valentine, her latest endeavor, and the book has a prequel as well called Sharing Her Heart. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. It's our pleasure to have you on the program. <laughs> is it still your pleasure after all these technical difficulties? <laughs> yes. In fact, I wanted to mention, I just got your email saying you're sorry about it. Do not worry about it. We have technical difficulties. It happens. Do not sweat it. We're happy you're here now. Well, thank you. How many books have you? You are an award-winning uh, romance author, and I was looking at your website, and you had a bevy of very interesting awards. How many books have you written? I don't really know, honestly. <laughs> that sounds like a lot, then. <laughs> Well, they're not very long. You know, I write mostly short stories. So my my books tend to be either just short stories or collections of short stories is really where I'm trying to head. Um, I'm going to write a novel someday. I just haven't done it yet. But um, yeah, the short stories, I just I like to read them. I like to write them. So there are a lot of them, but they're not long. Very cool. And I'm really excited to have you on for this episode in particular, because since you are involved with writing, you know, erotic realism and that type of storytelling, a lot of those sexual themes, I think, translate particularly well to this week's film. Now, this is a film that I had never seen before. Uh, Obviously, Lee, you had never seen it before. Uh, It is 1975's Rocky Horror Picture Show. In this cult classic, sweethearts Brad and Janet, stuck with a flat tire during a storm, discover the eerie mansion of Dr. Frankenfurter, a transvestite scientist. Uh, as their innocence is lost, Brad and Janet meet a household of wild characters, including a rocking biker, played by Meatloaf, and a creepy butler. Though through elaborate dances and rock songs, Frankenfurter unveils his latest creation, a muscular man named Rocky. Uh, Nicole, Rocky Horror Picture Show was ranked 179 out of 500 on our list. That's certainly not quite as high as many of the films we've had, but still notably in you know the top 20% of the list. What is so important about Rocky Horror Picture Show? 
Okay, strap yourselves in, guys. This one's going to take a little longer than usual. Um, this production is both a send-up of and a love letter to old science fiction and B-grade horror movies, uh, particularly the Hammer horror films that were made in, in, in England, um, with a lot of specific shout-outs in the songs, tributes in the scenery, uh, but it does have a greater significance than that. Now, there's a large overlap between the geek community and the LGBT, etc. community, uh, chiefly due to the fact that there's a, there tends to be a more widespread acceptance of alternative and adventurous lifestyles in the realm of geekery and science fiction. Uh, see all of Robert Heinlein's later works. Um, but, you know, with its arrival during the nascent gay pride movement, Rocky Horror was a sexually transgressive landmark of its time. Uh, it's an early headlong embrace of alternative sexuality and gender expression. Uh, while it flopped at the box office in its initial run, it has flourished as a midnight screening. It's much beloved uh, as cult cinema, it's still shown weekly, more than 40 years on, in many major cities. Uh, it also created an unprecedented subgenre of the audience participation film. Fans show up in fishnet corsets, spangled top hats. They throw rice, shoot water guns, and shout at the screen, and occasionally will act in recreations of of the film in something that's called the shadow cast that's usually under the screen. Now, this sort of fan and audience engagement can be seen today at late night screenings of The Room, uh, the 1986 yeah. remake of Little Shop of Horrors, uh, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, Troll 2, Shock Treatment, Polyester, Repo, The Genetic Opera, and what I believe to be Rocky Horror's truest spiritual descendant, uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Great. Thank you so much, Nicole. I, I really appreciate such an in-depth analysis of the significance of this film. For me personally, having never seen this film, I've always known it was a cult classic, and I didn't know why. And having seen it, I now know why. So right off the bat, I would like to... Send the talking stick on over to Lee as our guest. You are someone who has never seen this film until this week. Before we get down into the nitty gritty and the, the more elaborate discussion of the themes and all that stuff of Rocky Horror, is it something you enjoyed? Is it something you didn't enjoy? Why or why not? Well, there are things about it I liked. The music is great. It's all that like rock musical stuff. And musicals are always, I love musicals no matter what they are. But when this one was over, I sat there and I thought, number one, I didn't even know Susan Sarandon could sing. Number two, Tim Curry is awesome, but even he can't pull off blue eyeshadow. And number three, the plot was. Honest to God, I couldn't even tell you what the story was. <laughs> so I don't know if I liked it. I liked it a little bit, I guess. I guess that's him. That final answer. I liked it a little bit. Right on. That's totally cool. Uh, we're going to delve into some of the more... <laughs> Uh, specifics of that. And so I actually feel like I am a, in a similar boat to you because I am someone who did not totally mm -hmm. follow the plot of this film. And I, and I really loved the music and performances. <laughs> and that's something that we'll talk about a little later. What I do want to talk about first, and I think this is important to talk about first, is that 
as Nicole said in the introduction, this is a film that has dramatically increased in popularity and cult status after it has been brought into an interactive setting at midnight showings throughout the entire country and throughout the world. Uh, so I am someone who has never been to these. Obviously, Lee has never been the one because she had never seen the film before either. Now, I would love, I know David has been the one, and I believe Nicole has been to part of one. I don't really fully understand it. Do they show the film? Are they acting the film? Is it both? What is the interaction between the audience and the the film when watching this live? So, uh, yes, is the answer to most of your questions. Okay. Uh, <laughs> In primary, the one that I saw and I know is, is pretty usual is what happening. What's happening is that, uh, so I'll just kind of walk through the experience at the beginning. You arrive, uh, at a movie theater long after it's closed and you are given a brown paper bag filled with various objects, including a handful of rice, some toast, a party hat, a water gun, other various items. Uh, then you go into the theater. The movie starts up on the screen. Then below the screen uh, is the shadow cast, as Nicole mentioned before, which is people dressed up like the characters acting it out at the exact same time. Oh, and even before the movie starts, they find out who has never been there before because uh, you are a virgin and must be brought up to the front to the stage, uh, have lipstick put on your forehead in a large V uh, usually there's games and, and rites of passage that are done to you. Uh, anyway, then the movie starts, all that's happening. Uh, and then people start yelling things and throwing things. And some of it is scripted and some of it is just whatever people can think of off the top of their head. And everyone's just enjoying this bizarre experience for about two hours together. Very interesting. This is something I, I'm glad Nicole made the parallel to the room in the top of the show, because that is something I can relate to. I went to a midnight showing of the room a couple weeks ago. Tommy was always there. And uh, they, they had like, for example, whenever the spoons would pop up, uh, because the spoons are a recurring theme in the room because uh, when Tommy was out bought all the picture frames for the house, he never took the default photos of the spoons outside of them. So whenever the spoons pop up in the background of a shot, just hundreds of <laughs> plastic spoons just fly forward as everyone in the audience starts throwing them all over. And that seems like a smaller version of mm-hmm. kind of what happens at Rocky Horror. You said there's something to do with rice. So, so yeah. So at various parts, there's props. Like when the wedding happens, you throw rice. When he says, let's have a toast, you throw pieces of toast. Uh, and um, I forget what the water gun is for. It's, it's, I think been, it's for the rain scene, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I was 14 when I went to this. So, <laughs> while. Um, yeah, some people bring newspapers to hold over their heads while the squirt yeah. guns are going. And and of course, there are calls and responses at various certain times. I just want to say I'm just going to use uh, these couple of words because they are what you will hear the entire night. Uh, but whenever anybody says the name Janet, the entire crowd yells out the word slut. When anybody says Brad's name, the entire <laughs> crowd yells out the word asshole throughout the entire film. Oh, dear. Wow. Is this something? Uh, first of all, Nicole, you said you've been the part of one, right? Yes. What was your experience so like going was, to that? I mean, I was at uh, at a at a geeky convention and they had a late night screening and I went with friends um, who were very tired. So 
we only stayed uh, pretty much until Meatloaf showed up. But at the very beginning, um, I copped to being a virgin, uh, and they drew the V on my head, and they drafted me for the shadow cast to play the part of the groom in the opening wedding scene. So I was prepped with like 30 seconds worth of, okay, now you you go up and just move your mouth when the guy on the screen is talking and then stop when he stops and then you're done. You know, it's just like, okay. Um, That sounds horribly stressful. I was just about to say, I feel like if I was going to go to this, A, I don't think I could tell them I was, I was a Rocky horror virgin because that's just, and B, if I was drafted into that cast, I just feel like I would have an anxious meltdown. Uh, Lee, is this something you would enjoy doing now that you know this? You know, I'm sure you knew it existed beforehand, but having watched the film. When, when I was, I probably would have appreciated the movie a lot more when I was younger. However, now that I'm 44 years old, so I pretty much don't give a crap. So I would do it, even though I think it would be stressful. <laughs> At the showing that I went to, they didn't recruit any members of, of the cast. So that, that wasn't something that happened at mine or any virgins to be part of the cast. Um, they, they had their set group at the one I was at and a, a female played Rocky, which was very interesting. Very cool. Yeah. There was a woman hmm. playing Rocky at the, the one I went to as well. They didn't give any important parts to the, to the virgins, just like sort of the people mm-hmm. who were on screen for about three seconds. Right. So I'm trying to well, picture this comfort. in a movie theater. <laughs> um, typically in a theater, there's usually not a stage. Sometimes there is. Um, and then how do they do it above it? Wouldn't they have to do it in front of it most of the time? Yeah, they do it in front of it. Oh, okay. So I see. Above. Very interesting. So I guess that leads us into our... Well, you know, I... <laughs> watching the one on Fox earlier tonight, so actually I've seen two now, and there is some of the audience on the camera, so you could watch that and find out all about it. <laughs> Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, and, and are you talking about the one, yeah. the, the brand new Fox show that comes out this week? The brand new one, Fox, yes. I was watching this as I was trying to get my technical difficulties under control. Nice. So I, I would actually love to pick your brain on that a little bit because I don't think any of us three have seen it yet. And that's the reason we're releasing this show this week. Uh, was it something <laughs> in contrast to the original that you found interesting that, that maybe you found was well done or poorly done? It was very close to the original, like the same script and, you know, the costumes weren't the same, but were similar. Um, so it was very, very close. Um, but Laverne Cox is awesome. So that was very nice to see. That was basically yes, why I watched yes. it. Yes, <laughs> I I love, love her in Orange is the New Black. Uh, that's yeah, awesome. yeah, that's a good show. <laughs> so very cool. That yeah, is that was what I enjoyed the most. That's awesome. So I would love to delve into our first question then that ties directly into this. This is a question from Nicole. Does this work on its own uh, as a film or is this something that maybe needs to have a live element to be fully appreciated? Uh, Lee, what do you think as someone who just watched this as only a film? I think it needs the audience participation. I sat here by myself watching with with a, a look of, I don't know, almost horror on my because I thought, I'm watching this and I'm spending time doing this. I'm not a real movie buff to start with. So, you know, this probably wasn't the best choice for me, I guess. But yeah, I think it really needs the audience participation. I think that's the only way it 
would work nowadays. I think even young people would watch it and say, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, as a as a young person that did watch this for the first time today and did question what the hell was that, uh, I would totally and this well i, I want to talk about this a little bit later because i have a tiny bit of a musical soapbox to get on which i think is important for this film but uh the music in this just hit on every cylinder for me and i was so enthralled in this movie i love this movie having never <laughs> seen it before and uh and i would absolutely go to a live performance now i probably chicken out and tell them i'm not a virgin because i really don't want to be cast but oh, don't be a wimp <laughs> Maybe I'll do it. I don't know. Uh, Take your lumps, Brett. Take <laughs> your life. Well, in any Roll case, in any case, I, I, I think this stands on its own as a film. If you take it for what it is, which is a really oddball musical that has some wonderfully quirky elements to it and some compelling themes for its time. And yes, I think it would be more interesting to watch with people and that's something i learned with the room it's very different to sit in a room and watch the room by yourself it's very awkward at times <laughs> versus being in a in a rambunctious crowd of people who all acknowledge that the room is weird and bizarre which is exactly i think what this does in a live setting but i really did enjoy it as its own as film as patient said at the top oh, sorry lee i i just lee uh, as it's as lee fine. said at the Don't top of the it. show uh i I do agree that the plot is somewhat convoluted and I didn't fully know what it was. So, Nicole, this is your question. Is this something you think that works by itself? I I think it works on its own as as a um filmed version of a stage production. Um it's not quite uh, the transitions aren't quite smooth enough for it to be a, a really solid standalone movie. But uh, there are, you know, there's some really distinct breaks where you can really see where the acts were. Um, but I think that it's, it's wonderfully sung and everybody's giving it their all, you know, everybody's game, everybody's right in there being enthusiastic. And, you know, Tim Curry is the definition of vamping it up. Yes, absolutely. Uh, for this. And you know what? I sat there and I'm thinking, you know, he is magnificent. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, is this too big? And I'm like, no, no. Nothing he does here could be too big for this character. And he's doing it with such brio and panache that, you know, style that it's, it just carries you along on the charisma. And I think Definitely. he's absolutely fantastic. Well, yeah, and his, his Vern Cox does it just as well. She, she it, really does just as that, well. That plays into the Frankenfurter character because even though this movie is very convoluted and kind of bizarre in case you didn't guys didn't catch it. He uh, dies at the end for being so extreme and strange. And so like the more that you can throw into that character of being really weird, I mean, it's it, the more it's going to work. Definitely. And yeah, I, I didn't uh, get that. And I'm glad you pointed that out. 
Yeah, he is a uh, Tim Curry for me. I know I I watched this film and I was looking at the cast and I was like, oh, wow, it's the Three Musketeers Home Alone 2 guy. And because I have only seen him in his later work. Uh, I was like, oh, my gosh, that is totally the guy from Three Musketeers. And that shows my age on this show. I totally get that. So, uh, yeah, he's like what he's Cardinal Rishnu or whatever. Um, he's the clown. He's Pennywise the clown no, in it. In it, it so the uh, the TV movie. Yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So I. Yeah, he's the most frightening, creepy clown yeah. ever in that movie. So having never seen him yeah, in anything released absolutely. prior to the early nineties, or at least that I remembered, I was like, wow, he owns this movie. His performance oh, yeah. as Frankenfurter is the soul of this movie. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he he, and he was in the the stage production too, right? Was he? Yeah, he was in both that was the, his thing, right? Both yeah. the British and the American stage productions, right? Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because you think so, like so he, he is this movie. Yeah, he's so well known for this film and so loved for it. Uh, but you you know, not to say that he didn't have a great career and wasn't well loved, but you kind of have to wonder like he could have maybe been a little bit more in the mainstream a little bit bigger in his prime. Uh, but you have to imagine that some studios probably shied away from him for being the beautiful transvestite. It was a while before he, well, had and he's in the new one also. Is he? Yeah. I think he, he does. He, he play the is, part of the expert. Uh, he's the invest. Yeah. The investigator. He does. Oh, he's, and he's Dr. He Von Scott. A, a few years ago. Right. It, not not the one that comes in. No, the the in, the guy, um, guy who is sitting in the office outside. Okay, so he's the the, the criminologist expert. Yes, that's the word. Yes, kind of yeah, the narrator and, and guy. Yeah. Why yeah. did I have it in my head that Tim Curry died? Yeah, I was just about to say, just he so the listeners die. know, he's not no, dead he's because we are talking about him like he's dead. Uh, he is not dead. Seventy I years mean, old, he is alive and kicking. He survived said stroke. So oh, that's right. He had a stroke. I, that's maybe. I think he's in a wheelchair, but he can speak. You can tell he had a stroke in the movie, though he speaks slowly and differently. But it works. It totally works. Hmm. Yeah, it's good. Awesome. I'm glad that they threw that, you know, that homage to him as an actor and let him be a part of the new part of it in some capacity. I think that's really neat. I always admire when they do that. Uh, this is a film, especially with Frankenfurter, that is loaded with symbolism, often on the nose. So what is Rocky supposed to represent exactly? And furthermore, what does his character uh, serve in the narrative? This is a question from David in our document. I think it's a very good one. Uh, why don't I pass this over to you, David, so you can give us a little bit of a rundown of what you're thinking with this. So the film is called the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, and I think the title is maybe just a, a little bit confusing, even as someone who's seen this film a couple of times now and, and understands the plot a bit better than those who are new to it. Um, but <laughs> I, I'm still not really sure why it's called the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, just kind of the you know, what is he supposed to represent? He's sort of this, you know, this perfect man that's made, but he has these very childlike like qualities. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of strays from Frankenfurter and his desires for a little bit. It's just, it's a very interesting character. Uh, you know, he doesn't really have a lot of lines of dialogue. He's got a couple of songs, 
but he's obviously very pivotal, but I'm just not really sure what, what, what the intention of that character is at all points in this film. Well, uh, he bones I mean, Janet. Show- so Sorry, there's... go ahead, Brett. I was just going to say he helps Janet explore her sexuality. <laughs> uh, she doesn't like muscly men. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like 20 so minutes later. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. And that's, but that's even in, in her character is, is super interesting because she's obviously very prim and proper and has to hide her sexual desires. That again, yeah, so am I. By Frank and further. And then, you know, further expanded upon by Rocky. Well, I mean, the stage show is just called the Rocky Horror Show. Mm -hmm. Um, So picture was thrown in when they made it a movie. Um, But he's just the, he's the, oh, what's the, he's the MacGuffin. You know, he's sort of Mm -hmm. the uh, catalyst for the things that go on, but he doesn't play a whole lot of an active role himself, at least not until toward the end. Um. He is, you know, he's the new Frankenstein's monster. Uh, so that's why he's so childlike. You know, he was just born seven minutes ago. So, um, um, and already having sex with Susan Sarandon. So he speaks <laughs> remarkably well. But I mean, he was he was one of the he fit the stereotype of particularly the the gay ideal uh, male form uh, at the time. Um, and so his his job is just to have a beautiful body and uh, you know, he's the fantasy of Dr. Frankenfurter of, of his perfect male. Um, and it's worth noting that when they make Rocky that you know, uh, Frankenfurter is putting different colored liquids in the tank, and at the end, it's rainbow striped. He he turns the colors the on. Side. I turns, noticed the rainbow. <laughs> yeah, he turns the colors on in the order of the rainbow as well. Right, right. So it ends up the whole tank looks like a gay pride flag at the end. Um. So I mean, that's very you know, there's a a lot of of ties in here. Right. Um, yeah, so me, I mean, I think it's it's just his purpose is just to to keep things moving. You know, he's the reason that other people do things, but he doesn't do a lot in and of himself. Mm-hmm. One thing that really blew me away with this film that I did not expect because a when I when I first heard of this film many years ago, I thought there was some sort of horror element to it because that's what, kind of what it alludes to in the title, and there's really not. Um, and but in any case. The two the two scenes that I thought were funny, but I was also really surprised they were happening because, again, 1975. Yes, this is the midst of the sexual revolution, but still a lot of the content we were getting on the big screen was still very sanitized. And the scene where the two scenes adjacent scenes where Frankenfurter appears in uh, their respective bedrooms. And Brad, and Brad and Janet. Yes. Those are my favorites. And, and seduces each of them. And seduces each of them all the way to the point where, you know, there is Frankenfurter. Exact same words. Exactly. Yeah. Exact same words, which is hilarious. Where he's like, have you done something to Janet? No. Do you think I should? And, <laughs> right. uh, and, 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 it, and I was watching this. And that and was like, what I liked about it. That, that parallel. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I was watching that and I was thinking, wow, this is a 1975 film that is straight up showing a silhouette of an oral sex. And I was like, wow, I did not expect to see this in this movie. Uh, that really blew my mind. And the new movie, you don't see quite as much. There's not as much that you can even imagine because it's on TV. And 14, right. which I checked out because my third. 13 year old she'll be 14 next month was sitting with me saying i really want to watch that with you because she she figure skates they skated to time warp a couple of times you know she really wanted to watch this and i thought should i preview this first and then i thought well it's tv how bad could it be (laughs) i did a clock (laughs) at night too so yeah but really it was not nearly as racy that part and i was watching carefully because i that was the the raciest part of the original yeah i was very surprised at that. And that's interesting to hear. And it makes total sense being a Fox production on primetime because right. uh, you don't often see a property come back and be remade uh, and be toned down. In fact, if there is a property, be whether toned it be a down horror, exactly right, especially whether it be a horror film or something that is very sexual or something like that, typically, if you remake it, you amp all of those things up, right? Like, because we have the ability to do that nowadays right. and we Absolutely. do it. But that doesn't sound like it was the case here, which I find very interesting. I no. think I, I think it would have been amped up if they did a full on movie remake. Probably. But like you said, this is on this is a prime time. If it was in the theaters, but this yeah. is T V fourteen at eight o'clock right. at night. Yeah. Yeah, it's a prime time. <laughs> right. And I could share it with my thirteen year old, so that was Right. Yeah. Although there's very little actual nudity. That's true. In in the movie. No. There's some accidental the nudity, bra. I think. <laughs> the bra is more demure, I think, too. Yeah, I think there's a lot less booby showing because <laughs> Susan Sarandon had a whole lot of booby showing. <laughs> yes, she did. Well, I don't know if I would call it accidental nudity at the end with uh, uh, Little Nell's character. Yes, yeah, who, that's what of course that is about. You know, halfway down her body. <laughs> right. As uh, I did not notice that. I, I I would be interested <laughs> to get a perspective from you, Lee, because what you do is uh you write uh you know erotic fiction and 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 i'm very interested to get your perspective Mm -hmm. because you are someone who creates artistic expression through sexuality in your writing and this film is something that that used sexuality to create an artistic representation of these themes and these ideas that were becoming so prevalent in 1975 do you relate to this as an artist in any way well you know it's funny because I try sometimes I take my stories and I think I want to tone this down so my mother can read it. My mother knows what I write. She's never read any of it that I know of. I would think she would have told me if she did. Um, but try to tone things down. I realize that when I'm writing, when I'm writing sex scenes or, you know, this guy's watching this porn and he's you know masturbating in his bedroom, like that is building their their character. And I do a lot of characterization that way. If they're watching really nasty porn, then, you know, the, that goes along with them declining out of control. Whereas, you know, if they're in a relationship mm-hmm. with someone they really like, then, you know, that's the opposite, obviously. Um, so I really like when sex kind of tells the story. And that was what I, one of the things that I really appreciated about this when, you know, and then what Frankenfurter said to Janet and what she said to, I forget his name. Jeez. What's his Brad. name? Help me. <laughs> Brad. Brad? <laughs> yeah, Brad. Yeah. Um, that really was 
telling the story through sex. And that's what I do when I write my stories. Now, my stories are not as trashy as many. Um, there's a lot more plot in them. But when I try to take the sex out, the story no longer works. So that's sure. what I think about this one. If you take that part out, it doesn't work anymore. There are some people. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. And and I and I appreciate having your insight <laughs> on this. I'm going to play. I'm going to throw out here and play the devil's advocate of someone who is listening to this, who is real stringent on on you know sexual things and that sort of thing, and uh-huh. say, "Oh, this is all just trashy. It's all just glorified porn." Um, just being you know my grandparents right now or something. Uh, what wh- what would you respond to that as someone who also writes that? Well, just don't read it. If you don't like it, you don't read it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, my, my, my response to it personally as someone who goes to an art school is I'm like, have you, <laughs> have you walked into the, the Roman ward of the Art Institute of Chicago or something like that? Like sexuality is something that is prevalent in artistry for a long when time. They, when they, when they excavated Pompeii, you know, after the Mount Vesuvius, they excavated Debated that not too long ago. There were everywhere. There were what everywhere? Sorry, <laughs> you like cut out. Penises. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> they were everywhere. And this is not a new thing, you know? Representations of them, right? You're not talking about the actual body parts <laughs> perfectly well, preserved no, penises. No. well I, I mean anybody that they found that was male obviously had that but uh, well yeah no i'm talking like decorations in the home you know uh, over doorways and stuff in the movie the bird cage you know when they bring out the dishes with the, <laughs> the men having sex on them like that's the kind of thing that you saw in- so we're going to call this episode this perfectly preserved penises. I might write a story about that. <laughs> talking about Pompeii for a moment. That's quick aside. I've been to Pompeii. It's a very interesting place. Uh, they have, um, I mean, they had some brothels there and above the doorway <laughs> in, you know, painted out were the acts that the woman in that room would perform. And that's how you would make that's a awesome. selection for the evening. <laughs> Huh. Well, like you, if you menu. couldn't read, you had to do something. It's very true. But they couldn't read. You had to do something. Yeah. So anyway, what <laughs> I am getting at statues and churches, right? Right. They had both the statues in the churches. What do you call? You know, same thing. <laughs> yeah. So I, I certainly, I not only do I go to an arts, you know, university, but I also go to an arts university that is particularly liberal with its artistry. So I see uh, art that is inspired by sex and gender. And for example, like when I go, you know, when, when I, I know so many people uh, in my courses that are, uh, that have different varying ideas of, of their gender, that it's not just linear male, female and all that sort of things. My point is, is that there is an art, art artistry is always expanding through the ideas of what is gender, what is sex. And I think this film is a very interesting portrayal of that during a time at at which, especially in the United States, we were really exploring that in 1975. Uh, I wasn't exploring it. I was only three. (laughs) That's good. That's good. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) So uh, (laughs) one thing I did want to mention, and uh, I, I just prefacing this, everybody, it's Brett's musical minute right now. (laughs) 
So oh, here we go. I love I love the music in this film. That's what really did this film for me. I think it's really well written and really well performed. And it very much aligns with the glam rock of the 1970s. And glam rock Absolutely. is a genre that I am a huge, huge fan of because uh, in the pre-show, we were talking about David Bowie. Uh, Bowie is someone we tackled with Labyrinth, even though that episode is coming out in the future. Uh, Yep, Labyrinth. (laughs) Another tick mark, David. Another tick mark for the Labyrinth checklist. But anyway, Bowie was someone who showed up in Texas in 1971 wearing a dress and went on stage. And that did not go over well. And, you know, the cover on 1971, The Man Who Stole the World, is him in that dress. Uh, 1972, he puts out Ziggy Stardust, Stardust, which is very androgynous. Uh, The next album is uh, The Diamond Dogs, who is, which is even more in that direction of sexual exploration and ideas. And Bowie was not the only person in this era exploring that. There was Wait, Lou he Reed. Album called the Diamond Dogs. Yeah, Diamond Dogs. Yeah. Oh. Uh, in fact, Diamond Dogs had such a racy cover that I've they had to that Diamond Dogs had to actually uh, reprint. Uh, in fact, if you can get the cover with the dog balls on it, and that's all I'm going to say, uh, you have a very, very, very oh, valuable copy of Diamond Dogs. Well, the reason that I, I bring that up, slight aside in your in your music moment, I apologize. You're all good. Uh, Metal Gear Solid Five, the mercenary group is called the Diamond Dogs, and a movie that features very or a song that features very heavily in that uh, game is the Man Who Sold the World. It begins with that song. Nice, love continue. it. Yeah, the Diamond Dogs, 1974, uh, and and there's a basically on the cover, Bowie is like half dog, half human, and you can see uh, the dog's testicles and stuff in the original cover, and that did not go over well with American audiences, and were way later blurred out. So, um, but not before a couple of them were pressed. But anyway, uh, Bowie also turned other artists onto this in the early 70s, all the way early as 1970. We had Roxy Music in Britain and Brian Ferry, the majestic creature that he is. I love Brian Ferry, Ferry with all of my heart and soul. He embodies <laughs> the kind of character that Dr. Frankenfurter is. Uh, Brian Ferry experimented with that stuff even more than Bowie to some degree. And then you had people like Lou Reed, who put out in 1972 Transformer, which had songs like Walk on the Wild Side that explored these ideas even further. And then throughout the 1970s, all of these acts were growing and expanding, even stuff like T-Rex. You had so many artists who were exploring these ideas. You had Rod Stewart, if you want to throw Rod Stewart out there. Uh, and this was a wonderful musical re- revolution because it was... It wasn't just androgynous and it wasn't just look at me put up, put on makeup and make weird sounding music. But if you listen to these records and you listen to Transformer, you listen to Diamond Dogs, you listen to the Roxy music albums, they're experimenting with like jazz fusion, with uh, experimental rock and roll and the early beginnings of alternative rock and stuff that uh, arguably you could draw parallels to, uh, the stuff that came out later in the decade, a lot of punk stuff and a lot of uh, post pop stuff has roots in glam rock. And all of that is so important in the musical ancestry of American music in particular, and also British music, because we, again, there are people like Rod Stewart, people like Brian Ferry. And I love that about this film. This film is glam rock to the nth degree. Everything about this film is glam rock, the outfits, the songs, the style of the songs. If you enjoy the soundtrack, of uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, then you owe it to yourself to go listen to Diamond Dogs, go listen to Transformer, go listen to Avalon, uh, the Roxy Music record. Uh, there, All of it 
is very much tied in. And I love that about this film. All right. Brett's music minute and a half is over. I would disagree that it's that all of the music is like that. There are several that have like a distinct sort of 1950s vibe. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, but a lot of it's vibe to them. Well, I would say when 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 Meatloaf comes out and does his song, like that is a Meatloaf song. Yes, they, yes. They put that perfectly in his wheelhouse, and it's. I mean, it, it works great. Yes, I. In fact, when I saw, I did not well, know Meatloaf loved- was in this film, and I was just watching this. And this, and this- I loved the the mix. Yeah, I loved the mix between the glam rock and the meatloaf and Susan Sarandon singing about the light, you know, this beautiful little melody she's singing. I love when things that are not the same come together in one work. And this really that was one of the things that I really appreciated, even though when I got to the end and had no idea what the hell was going on. I appreciated every minute of the music and how it worked together. Absolutely. And again, I, I did not know Meatloaf was in this film. So when he drives through the wall, I'm like, holy shit, it's Meatloaf. I'm like, what is happening right now? I have no idea what is going on. And one thing you've, I love that Lee mentioned there is that there are different. I shouldn't say Nicole is right. I should not say that the entire film is glam rock. There are uh, hearkenings back to earlier decades. But even Meatloaf, if you look at Meatloaf as a musician, he is not a glam rock musician. He occupied hard rock he occupied early progressive and metal rock uh which is cool because when you look at like hard rock of the 1970s it kind of started like blurring the line with glam to an to a degree with people like meatloaf people like alice cooper is there a category for melodrama rock because that's where (laughs) i think meatloaf would fall yeah, you know, probably. Very... I think of him as prom rock. Oh, interesting. <laughs> like make out on the dance floor, prom rock, and the girls dance on one side and the boys dance on the other. Because it happens at every prom, you know, since, sure. since Meatloaf was, you know, on stage. <laughs> sure, yeah. He's definitely very much of that Alice Cooper era of the, of the mid to late 1970s of combining some glam elements with kind of a hard rock metalish sound that even though it sounds incredibly tame now, parents heard that in 1975 and they're like, oh my God, it's the devil speaking in tongues. <laughs> And I saw Alice Cooper in concert. I saw Alice Cooper in 1991 ish. So way after his big days, but mom, my boyfriend, then now he's my husband, but we went and we saw it. And that was one of the great nights of our life. <laughs> I saw was Alice. His Wayne's world resurgence. <laughs> oh, and you know what? That's what I watched in college. We loved that movie. My oh, kids yeah. think it's ridiculous, but that's okay. I have a I have a friend that works with Alice Cooper like on the regular. Wow! Wow! How so? You're like a celebrity. <laughs> uh, I mean, he lives in Phoenix. He, uh, I mean, he worked a lot with some of the foundations that Alice Cooper has out there, and they do the uh, Alice Cooper's Christmas pudding every year. Uh, yes. And he's like, he's got to play I don't on know stage, what that is. huh? <laughs> it, it's I like a, it's I've a, never heard of this. Yeah, it's like a it's a concert that he puts on every year. He, like my friends got to play with like Johnny Depp on stage and stuff. He's got some. Oh, he's another there. awesome one. Yeah. Yeah, because Alice, <laughs> I saw Alice about three years ago, so I saw him even further past his prime in his late sixties, <laughs> and uh, he holds up so well. And and I I'm a good parallel to make again between this film and Alice is that. A lot of the imagery that you see in Rocky Horror 
is the theatrical type of things that people like Alice bring to the stage. You know, Alice has so exactly. much theatrical. Yes. Like, I don't know when you saw him, if he was still doing this, because I know he kind of took a break from it, but he kills himself like five different times on stage. He hangs himself. He beheads himself. Uh, he electrocutes himself. A giant uh, Frankenstein animatronic comes out and starts dancing with him. Like, it does not take itself seriously. And that's what's splendid about it. And that is totally this film in some well, ways. Well, I saw him. <clears throat> I saw him after he stopped. Well, he was doing the different thing. He wasn't doing the big heavy makeup and the lines off his eyes and stuff, except halfway through the concert. Maybe not halfway, maybe a third through. I don't know. Um, he got like carried off stage by minions or whatever. And the whole thing was up on a big screen, which. I don't think I'd seen before at a concert like this. And we watched him be remade into his old character. And that was so much fun. Hmm. And really a lot like what's going on here with, you know, the corset and the blue eyeshadow and all of that. It was, it was fun. Just fun. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> Definitely. And quick random sh uh, note on meatloaf. If you ever want to hear something that's particularly interesting, he recorded a cover of Benny King's stand by me for Rocky horror picture show. And it was oh. later released uh, in 84 as a B side. Uh, so for some reason they brought meatloaf into the studio and they're like, Hey, you want to do a soul cover for a Rocky horror picture show? And it never ended up on the recording. <laughs> and it is a fascinating listen. Look, if you've got if you've got meatloaf in the studio, you get as much out of him as you can. That is <laughs> oh, yeah, I really. Love it. I love that, it. Meatloaf is such a character. I find him so interesting. Can can we talk a little bit about that? One of the and the meatloaf. Last... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead, Lee. What, meatloaf just what I th what I think about um, meatloaf is just that. Every generation listens to Meatloaf. You get to college and you're a freshman and somebody introduces you to Meatloaf and all of a sudden you're this big Meatloaf fan. I mean, we're talking like 40 years of this now. <laughs> <laughs> I One thing I will say, and then I'll hand the, the, the stick back to David, is that I helped teach a class called The Roots of Rock and Soul. And the first semester, we teach 1900 through 1969. And the second semester, we teach 1970 through contemporary. And Meatloaf is in that second semester. So good job, Meatloaf. You are briefly taught in a college class. You did it. Okay. Uh, what, what do you have to say, David? That's my goal, by the way. There you go. <laughs> so we, we mentioned, you know, this film not taking itself seriously. Um, and that's kind of what makes all of this work. It's, it's so the film doesn't take itself seriously, but the characters are taking, or the actors are taking it seriously, which is where all of this starts oh, to yes. really, really work. Uh, but that last scene when they're like, "Are you ready for a floor show or the stage show or whatever?" and then this is where like the movie just kind of abandons whatever is going on, and everybody's a statue. And then they come to life for this very bizarre pool sequence. Like, what is going on there? <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> I don't know either. Yeah, but this this is the it. part of the movie that, you know, oddly enough, I found the most emotionally compelling because it had these two very emotional songs in it. It had Don't Dream It, you know, Don't Dream It, Be It. Um, encouraging and embracing of your own identity. And then I'm going home, 
Um, you know, it could be about the dream of going back home after you've come out and hopefully being accepted or finding a place where you actually fit in or any kind of relief or release after a life of struggle. And I mean, these could very much be, you know, gay anthem songs. I mean, these are, and that's, that's part of why there's such an identification between this, this movie and the LGBT community is because it's very strong message throughout this film is accepting, you know, just go, just going with who you are and accepting these different parts of yourself. Well, and, and one thing that I find, I appreciated that a lot. Yeah. One thing I find fascinating about that that point uh, (laughs) is that like Dr. Frankenfurter, he is like the epitome of that, but he's not perfect. There's, you have, um, I can't remember her. I can't remember the actress's name. I can't remember her character. Little Nell, uh, the one who was in love with Eddie Meatloaf's character. Little Nell is actually the actress's name. It's, right. That's, uh, her I can remember character her. name is Columbia. Yeah, that's it. Where she is accusing him of, um, of you know, you just use people until until you're done with them, and then you spit them out, and you know, basically ruin them. And it, it just w- was very interesting because you know it is it is championing this idea of um you know of whatever your sexuality is whatever you are embrace it be part of that but it doesn't make you know the queer or gay characters these uh like shining symbols they're not like they're not perfect they're not great they're human and that's right. i think that's great nobody's perfect mm-hmm. nobody's perfect except david so Bowie. you stabbed that guy with an ice pick hey it's okay <laughs> everybody makes mistakes so, Brett, <laughs> we all heard you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I want. I do want to address our final two uh, discussion topics because this is one. And this is an episode where we could talk forever about this film. So, uh, with whom are our symphony? Our, our, our sympathies supposed to lie? Is it different for different segments of the audience? This is a question from Nicole. Nicole, yeah. where do your sympathies lie in this film? Uh, for me, it's it's almost evenly divided between, you know, Dr. Frankenfurter and Brad and Janet, you know, because I used to be that sort of buttoned up, um, not prim exactly. I mean, I, I talked a good game, but I was very inexperienced and very hesitant about that sort of thing. Um, and seeing them go through this sort of freeing of that side of themselves, um, I th- thought was, you know, it was great fun to watch. And it was something that I kind of understood, you know. And again, with Frankenfurter just fully embracing uh, who he is and being over the top and wonderful. And I mean, working that corset and those heels and any man who can wear that and still do, you know, hip swivels like that gets bonus points in my book. I'm a sucker for a guy in makeup, I gotta say. Um, but I mean, he, he comes off as, you know, very assured, you know, granted, like you said, he's not perfect. It's to the point of narcissism. Mm-hmm. But he comes off as very assured yes. and strong and just kind of bringing everyone along, you know, this whole crowd of people that he's just sort of carrying along with his energy. It's like this mass of groupies. 
with him almost. Um, like Donald Trump. <laughs> right. And then he's got that beautiful song at the end singing, I'm going home. I mean, I was, I honestly, I got a little choked up at the listening to that. You know, it was it's a beautifully shot. It's scene. really something. It's beautiful. And he sings it so well. And, you know, so that's, I mean, that's where the majority of my sympathies went for this movie. Absolutely. I, I'd actually agree with you. Well, you know, go ahead. <laughs> I would have to say that my answer would be the same thing and not quite for the same reasons, but similar. I mean, my husband and I met in high school and until we were in our forties, we never did anything with anybody else. You know, we high school sweethearts married at 24, three kids. And all of a sudden I realized that for like 20 years, I was burying the fact that I left women too. So just in the last couple of years, my life has changed dramatically. And it started with the writing erotica and got, I got to know people who several bisexual men, a couple of bisexual women. And I realized, wow, that's me. And so I can identify with the, you know, buttoned up Janet and Brad. And then, you know, Frankenfurter is like, like the epitome of just love yourself and, you know, embrace what you are. And that I, I, I like that a lot. <laughs> it's almost power, time maybe. becoming incoherent, but, but yeah, I mean, I, what you're saying is absolutely correct. And I see it from another side, but yes, absolutely correct. Okay. Somebody else's turn. <laughs> right on. Yeah. I, I definitely agree uh, <laughs> with, with Nicole that you could definitely have split sympathies in this film. I, found that last scene, the I'm going home scene, really powerful as well. And I really love the way it was shot. It was shot with very minimal lighting. It was done in this very emotional way, especially in the final notes of the of the song when when Frankenfurter steps in front of the single light that is in the area and it kind of drowns him out and creates this silhouette that I just found hauntingly beautiful. I thought that a lot of this film was very well shot especially that scene and that really evoked an emotional response for me uh, especially because i just love the music i thought the music was great that's something i've definitely made clear on the show but anything that can combine music and film in a meaningful capacity and do it well has my money take my money take my tickets i want to come check it out because i love that sort of thing uh david what about you what do you think um you know i think uh, uh you know absolutely in the beginning, you're supposed to kind of sympathize with uh, with Brad and, and Janet because they're thrown into this situation and are kind of in in some strange ways being taken advantage of, uh, you know, being pushed outside of their comfort zone. Uh, but as they they had their of, clothes ripped off, yes. yeah, they, they do. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's that's a big push. <laughs> that's violating, you know. Uh, but you know, as they yeah. kind of come to Makes accept time. what's going on and. Uh, then kind of in the middle, there's really nobody to sympathize with until it gets to, you know, Frankenfurter's big, big thing at the end. This discussion has made me realize largely that we get zero resolution on uh, Brad and Janet and uh, whatever happened to those two crazy kids. But hey, you know, there's only so many minutes in a movie. Well, what do you think? Did they get married? That's uh, it could go either way, right? Because they, they, when they 
talked, you know, they didn't really seem to be in a good place because she had just slept with Rocky and been caught in the act by him. And um, I mean, you know, there, there'd be, a, there would be some therapy there. And, and the thing is that I look at this from my own perspective. Okay. So my husband and I were 16 years old. We met, you know, he's the only guy I had sex with for a very, very long time. And if I had had an experience like that, who knows what would have happened, you know, before we got married, who knows if I would have said, Hey, I want to be that monogamous little, you know, but not my collar kind of girl. I don't know. And I don't know that my husband would have wanted to do that either, but that was the path we chose at that point. So I don't know. Do you think they got married? I don't know. I don't think they did. I think so. Oh, I just, I need to point out, I've, I've been doing a little IMDb here when you talk about how beautifully this movie was shot. Um, the cinematographer is named Peter Sushitsky, and he worked not only on this film, he worked on uh, Dead Ringers. He worked on Naked Lunch. He worked on uh, more visually sumptuous films like M Butterfly and Immortal Beloved. Uh, he shot Mars Attacks. He, he shot A History of Violence, Eastern Promises. Um, so he's got a very long... Oh, yeah, and The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, <laughs> he's the director of photography for. So, I mean, this, this, is a, this is a man who's very big in his field, and it's kind of no wonder that it's as beautiful as it is. Very cool. That's I. Wow, I did not know that same guy would shot Empire Strikes Back. That's phenomenal. I love it. So I do want to mention our final question here, and then we're going to wrap this down. We are running a little bit over. There are parts of this that felt like a stage show with how things were miked. This is something that you were positing, David. Can you give us a little more of what you were thinking about with this? Uh, and, and we kind of talked about it um, where this was a stage show that was translated over to a film. There's one scene in particular when they first make Rocky or are getting ready to just the way everything's kind of set up um, where it, it looks like we're, we're looking at a stage and there's times where the dialogue you can't, you know, you can hear it. Okay. But it, it just, it resonated with me as if they were on a stage. It reminded me a lot of um, another film, the remake of the producers. If anybody's seen that yeah. there is uh, not the, the set, this, their office, uh, the entire office set is very obviously um, the stage that was it that was used for the play that both Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick were in, I believe. Um, so it, it just, I like moments like that when you have a play that is translated over to, uh, to film where they kind of keep that, that feel and element of it. Um, I, you know, they could have done a little better with the audio quality, but, uh, I, I like the way that some of those scenes were composed and where the bodies were placed and, and how everybody moved around. Sure. Absolutely. I love it when a film that was originally a play keeps some of the atmosphere of being on the mm -hmm. stage. Uh, mm -hmm. My favorite example of that, one of my favorite films is Glengarry Glenn Ross. And that is a film that could, you could literally, it was originally a stage play and the film could literally be a stage play because it's only done in three rooms. And I love that about that film. Uh, so 
Absolutely. That is compelling. One thing I do want to drop here uh, before we do our plugs here is that Meatloaf, uh, I was doing a little bit of digging on what Meatloaf is doing now. And the most recent Meatloaf project that was teased and will likely come to fruition shortly is a Christmas album called, uh, oh God, what is it? Hot Holidays featuring Garth Brooks and Reba. Oh, this this sounds like an atrocity on so many levels. I cannot wait. I hope for letting me know this is going to be happening. Meatloaf and Garth Brooks. You heard it here first on Geek Cinema Society. Let's go around the table and figure out what everyone is doing with their lives, where people can find them. Uh, Let's start with you, Lee. You are the guest of honor. Where can people find you online? What should they be on the lookout for? Well, patiently.com is my website, and that's kind of the hub of everything that I do. Um, you know, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, and I hate Twitter, but I do it anyway. Um, but what I'm working on now is just a, a Halloween story, an erotic horror story that takes place in a, an abandoned mill. And, um, you know, I wrote it a few years ago, and I'm reworking it to make it reflect all the things about writing that I've learned. Um, <laughs> so it'll be a lot cleaner, not cleaner like It'll be dirty. It'll be totally dirty. But the, the <laughs> language will be cleaner. <laughs> and I'm hoping to get that out for Halloween. And that's going to do it for this episode of Movie Go Round, or I suppose <laughs> Movie Ghoul Round. It's been a very fun October. That was a lot of fun going down memory lane. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I especially had a lot of fun sprucing up the audio and improving what is now, goodness, probably over two years ago or somewhere in that ballpark. So a couple shout outs. First of all, you can check out Patient Lee online. She is still writing her books. Uh, you can find her on patientlee.com. That is P-A-T-I-E-N-T-L-E-E.com. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. You can find David at Dav Luz, and you can find Nicole at Your Word Whiz. We'll be back next week with a variation of You Did This To Us. I think it might be another one of these remasters, but we're going to find out and put that on social media in the next couple days in case you would like to follow along and watch the movie. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll see you next Monday with a brand new episode of Movie Go Round.